Good morning. If you turn with me to the scripture uh, on which today's teaching is based, it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, I'll be reading from verses 10 through 23. And it's also printed in your bulletins. Read along with me, at least quietly. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And this is God's word. You know, it's a new year. We're heading right into the new year. And we often focus in the new year. Uh, You know, in the fall, we generally focus on who is Jesus. That's generally what we do. In the new year, we like to focus on how does the gospel then shape us as a body, as a community. And so we thought we'd focus on four critical areas of life that can either make your life or break your life. And we've covered them before, but we thought it was important to talk about this as a way of introducing Metro to many people here, introducing you into our ethos, into our culture, because if you haven't realized, uh, we've experienced a growth spurt, and one out of every four people at our church today has only been here less than a year. And so we thought we'd share a little bit about the things that make up the culture of our community here. Now, here at Metro, we say that we value character above competence. Character is way more important to us than competence, and that sounds really good. In fact, a lot of us will say, wow, I agree with that. But to be honest, let's be honest here, that goes against our human nature. And so it takes a very radically changed heart, a radically changed person, a certain type of person to value character above competence. For example, think today about the people that you want to date. 
because the reality is that if you're courageous enough to admit this, we tend to look at character as something that just comes along with an overall package. And most of the package that we tend to focus on, most of the stuff that we tend to brag about when it comes to somebody that we're interested, has very little to do with character. Now, this passage is about Saul. And Saul is the first king of Israel. And if you read the first parts of the narrative, the part that we haven't read about Saul, Saul is a very attractive person. He's a religious person. He's comes, he comes from a very good family. He's trained. And in fact, he even demonstrates aspects of humility at first. And so he's wise and even merciful to others, but life eventually spirals downward into ruin. And Saul becomes rebellious and envious and power-hungry and murderous. And it's all because Saul ignored the warning signs about himself. He was self-deceived. And so today we're going to learn about self-deception and pride. Four things we're going to learn, quick things. One, diagnosing it. Two, what are the symptoms of it? Three, what are the roots of it? And lastly, how do you cure it? The diagnosis, the symptoms, the roots, the cure. First, let's look at the diagnosis. And verse 18 uh, kind of sums it up. The Amalekites, Saul is fighting the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a neighboring tribe, a neighboring nation. And, and God says to Saul, because these people were an extremely violent people, as a decisive act of justice, I want you to engage them in battle. I want you to engage them in war. I want you to defeat them. And when you defeat them, I don't want you to leave a single person alive. I don't want you to sing, leave a single cow, not a single animal alive. Defeat them all. Destroy them all, he says. Now, why? Saul was supposed to be a modest king. He's supposed to be a righteous king. God, when he established kings, they were supposed to be very different from all the other kings that surrounded them. All the other kings that were, were compelled by power. They were lustful. They were angry and violent people. But God's people, God's kings, were supposed to be a representation of his own character. So they were supposed to be modest. So their palace was actually more modest than other palaces. And they only killed out of necessity when God called on them because they were going against a violent people, a bloodthirsty people. And so Saul, being a modest king, a righteous king, he wasn't bloodthirsty. And he wasn't supposed to plunder or loot other countries. But what we see here is now time has gone by. And what Saul did instead was he kept the best of the livestock and he took the king of the Amalekites, Agag, he took them as a prisoner. Why? It's because Israel is an agrarian culture. And in agrarian culture, if you capture a person's land, it made you wealthier. If you have a certain plot of land and take over another person's plot of land, now you are twice as wealthy. And Saul then took over other plots of land. He looted and he plundered. Now that makes him twice as wealthy. And if you capture a king and take him as prisoner... And if that person was a king, now you are a king of kings. And so Saul, who was called to destroy this violent culture, this greedy culture, is now becoming violent and is now becoming greedy. And since a king represents a whole nation, Israel is now becoming a violent culture, a greedy nation. You see that? A, a, a nation that's given to power. And so God tells Samuel, as we head into this passage, I reject him as king. Now, you notice later, verse 19, Samuel asks Saul, 
why did you not obey the instruction of the Lord? The actual Hebrew literally says, why did you not listen to the voice of the Lord? And Saul says what? Well, because A, B, and C. No, that's not what he does. He says, I did listen to the voice of the Lord. I was going to take the best and I was going to sacrifice it. So, in a sense, I was going to listen to the voice of the Lord. I did listen to the voice of the Lord. And Samuel says, I told you to destroy everything. And you say you listen. Maybe you did listen, but you didn't take what I said in. You didn't digest it. You didn't let it change you. Because to listen to the voice of the Lord is more important than any sacrifice. To be affected by what you heard, to let it shape you, is more important than the fat of rams. That's what Samuel says. What's he saying? What he's saying is this, that it's possible on one level to hear God and yet at a deeper level totally miss God. It's possible on one level to hear the word of the Lord and yet on another level to totally ignore the word of the Lord. It's possible to do that. That's called self-deception. When you're self-deceived, there's a, a spiritual deafness that's at sin or a spiritual blindness that's at sin. And because you're self-deceived, it's perfectly possible, like Saul, to say, I did listen. I did obey. Because self-deception has a way of distorting your view of reality. When that spiritual deafness comes in, you're seeing the words, you're hearing the words, and yet... You're missing it altogether. You're missing the intent. You're missing the heart. You're not letting it shape you. And so your view of reality is distorted. Everything that God wants for you that is good, that is excellent, that is perfect, and it leads you into this undercurrent of distrust in God. And so you stop hearing God. You stop hearing what he desires of you. You stop hearing what he promises for you. That's pride. To totally ignore, to miss what God is saying to you. And so Saul's thinking, giving up all these animals, why? Give up all this wealth, why? To give up all these people, I could take them into slavery. We could be twice as powerful. Why would we do that? Why would God withhold something good from my life? That's Adam and Eve, by the way. If you go all the way back to the first book in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan is tempting Eve to say, hey, take the, take the fruit of this tree. Now God told Eve not to take, ever to take the fruit of this tree, and what the text says in Genesis, as Eve is looking at this tree, it says that the, that the fruit was pleasing to the eye. It looked good. In other words, Eve is thinking, why would God withhold this good thing from my life? Self-deception shows us that the heart has an amazing capacity to hide the truth about yourself. Your heart has an amazing capacity to ignore everything that is true about you, to abandon and reject everything that is true about you. And that becomes the root of every act of sin, every outward, overt act of sin. That's the diagnosis, number one. Number two, we have the symptoms. There are several symptoms here. The first, I'm going to go right into it. One, uh, you ignore your conscience. Samuel comes to see Saul, verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, he says, hello, greetings. And then he says, I have obeyed the instructions of the Lord. The first thing that Saul says when he comes out, I just want you to know, Samuel, I carried out the Lord's instructions. 
What's going on here? His conscience is acting up. He already kind of knows what's going on. And so Samuel coming to him, he knows there's something up. And so he buffets it. He says, I obeyed. I obeyed. Right? That's what he does. He knows he didn't listen, but he's self-deceived. And the first thing we do when we're self-deceived is we start to ignore our conscience. And so he's already self-deceived. He's trying to deceive Samuel. Instead of coming clean, he knows, but he doesn't. And there are examples of this. I'm going to go, I'm not, I had, before I preached this, we've had many examples. I'm going to share one, uh, and uh, that's probably a bit more personal uh, to us. And then the second one, I heard from one of my favorite preachers. So the first one, uh, you know, you had a terrible day. Everything's going wrong, starting from the morning. And so your morning commute, it just sucks. You know, it's pouring rain. You know, uh, and you're, it's a tough commute, and you're going into work, and your hair's all messed up, and your clothes are wet, and, you know, nobody likes to walk into work, uh, you know, like that, and the night before, you had a terrible argument with your spouse, and you had a terrible fight with your parents, and, and you feel like quitting your job, right? At 9 o'clock, you walk in. Well, nobody comes in at 9 anymore. It's 8 o'clock, 7.30, you come into the office, and, and, uh, and you feel terrible about work, and you want to quit your job. And you, the whole day goes by, and none of those sentiments have changed, and now you're on your way home. What do you do? You get home. Do you pray? <laughs> do you pray? Do you reconcile with your spouse right away? Do you repent? No. You know what you do? You turn on the TV. You put on Sports Center. You turn on Netflix. And you sit down, and you just veg. Right? That's what we do. Why do we do that? Your conscience is telling you something, what you should do. Now, your conscience isn't always right, but there's a godly conscience that comes in and tells you this is what you should do. Something is wrong. What do you do? When you turn on Netflix, when you turn on SportsCenter, you're ignoring your conscience. You're rejecting your conscience. You know, but you don't really know. You don't want to go into it. My favorite preacher, this is so good. It's too good not to share. I share it every time. Near the end of World War II, there was a town in Germany called Ordruf. And that was really the first concentration camp that was liberated by the Allies. But the, the German guards, to get rid of the evidence, they tried to incinerate the 2,000 bodies before the Allies would arrive to, to make it look like there was nothing really going on. And General George Patton <clears throat> uh, arrives. Uh, he was, his nickname was Blood and Guts, you know, because he was hard and he was, he was tough. When he went in and looked at what they were doing, they said he vomited. And Patton, in his anger, in his rage, he heard that the guards of this camp often go into town to womanize, to drink, and in order to womanize and drink, they start to brag about the things, that the, the people that they've killed, the stuff that goes on in the camps. So Patton's thinking, the people in the town of Ordruf, they must know what's going on. And so they go into the town, and they start interviewing the people. What actually went on in that camp? And the people said, we don't really know. We don't know anything about what's going on. What does Pat Patton say? He said, I don't care if you know or don't know. I don't care if you're the mayor or just a worker. Everyone tomorrow morning is going to come out, and you're going to help me dig graves for these bodies. And so everyone, including the mayor and his wife, are digging these graves for 2,000 bodies. That night, they went back. The mayor and the wife hung themselves, and there was a note attached that said, we didn't know, but we knew. Our hearts 
have an amazing capacity to ignore everything that is true about who we are. We don't want to know because we know, you see. And think about this. If the modern era, the most scientifically, educationally, technologically advanced culture in history is capable of this kind of atrocity, it can't be because we lack education or science or technology, right, as a culture. Why do we do it? Our hearts have an amazing capacity to ignore and hide the truth about who we are. So in verse 13, Saul says, I carried out the Lord's instructions. I listened to the voice of the Lord. Really? Samuel says in verse 14, then what then is the bleeding of sheep, the lowing of cattle? In other words, what he's saying is, really? You listened? Then why am I listening to the sound of sheep? Why am I listening to the voice of cattle? You listen to the voice of the Lord because I'm listening to the voice of cattle, to the voice of sheep, to the voice of animals. What does Saul say? Oh, the soldiers, they brought them. In Hebrew, he actually doesn't use the word soldiers. He actually uses a very ambiguous term. He says, they brought them. He's referring to the soldiers. He says, they brought them. Self-deception begins with ignoring your conscience, but then it leads to what? Blame shifting. We ignore our conscience to avoid the truth that we already know about who we are. But then what we do is we try to shift the blame on other things because it's easy to do that. It's easy to recognize the flaw of others. It's easy to pick on the things that are flawed with other people because a lot of times you are clearer about the flaws of other people than they are. And so we tend to ignore our own consciences, what our conscience is saying about us, and we start to pick on the flaws of other people. Very easy to do that. And so think about this. The easiest way to avoid looking at yourself is what? To pick on the flaws of others, right? That's why we gossip. We love to gossip. You know why? Because when you gossip, the very nature of gossip is to be able to share something that is discreet about another person that you know. To be able to share something that they said. To be able to share something that they did. To be able to embellish it with details that probably aren't true. And when you do that, it makes you, your heart, feel better about itself. It's got a miraculous way of making you feel better about yourself when you're putting another pe- person down. You're ignoring your conscience, even though your conscience is screaming. And what you're doing is you're shifting blame on somebody else. Now, third, what Saul says is, all right, okay, I did keep these animals, but we were going to sacrifice them to the Lord. What is he saying? What is he doing? He's covering over himself, his flaws, using good intentions. Saul says, Samuel, we're going to have this great worship service. And so another way to put that is religion, goodness. We often confuse goodness, right? We disguise our, our flaws with goodness to disguise it, to seem, to make it look like faith in the Lord. And so it becomes a way of justifying ourselves. We do that. We do that with how we spend our money. We do that with how we raise our children. We do that with the purchases we make. They say that our modern culture, we don't like to frivolously spend because we feel some sort of social responsibility to justify every dollar we spend on something. And so we will spend high dollars on something that is very, very, you know, decadent 
But what we'll do is we'll justify it by saying it's of good use to, some, to the environment or to you or to the culture or the community, you see? That's what we do. By the way, many non-religious people, people who don't attend the church, people who are not in any type of faith, they look at people in the church and they say, see, this is the reason why I don't believe the church. This is the reason why I don't trust in the church. What are they doing? They're shifting blame. They're justifying themselves too, right? Everybody shifts blame. Everybody justifies themselves, covers over their own flaws with the flaws of other people, or justifies themselves with, other, with, with rationale. And self-justification is the greatest contributor for self-deception regarding our pride, regarding our sin, regarding our selfishness. And until you identify how your particular sin is working in your life, until you own that sin, until you put an end to that sin, you are capable of any evil. Saul says, I obeyed. Then he says, okay, I didn't fully obey yet, but I had great intentions. He self-deceived, you see. So we talked about the diagnosis. We looked at the symptoms. Now let's go into the root cause. We have to know why we run from certain truths. And the answer is where Samuel says to Saul, interestingly, in verse 17, he says, I have a message for you, Saul. Though you were once small in your own eyes, didn't God anoint you as king? Once you were small in your own eyes, didn't God make you head over all the tribes of Israel? Once you were small in your own eyes, but the Lord has made you great. That's what he says. Why does he say this? And the answer is in the beginning of the text, in verse 12. Samuel goes looking for Saul, but he's told what? He's told that Saul has gone down to Carmel, and there he set up a monument in his own honor. Samuel says, Saul, you were once small in your own eyes. God has made you great. Saul, you are so insecure. You have such a small view of yourself. That's why, left alone, you go off and build monuments in your own honor. Monuments are, by nature, what? Tall, so that everybody can see how great you are. And we desire to build monuments in our own name, in our own honor today. It's a way of getting rid of how small we view ourselves, how small we feel at times. Samuel says to Saul, you are insecure. You have such a small view of yourself. That's why you're trying to build wealth. That's why you're trying to build your kingdom. That's why you've built this monument. You're still trying to make yourself great. You're still trying to make yourself look great in your own eyes. You're, start, you're still trying to convince yourself, now I know that I'm great. You know what jealousy is? Jealousy is, is this. You admire something. You admire something about somebody, but that admiration hooks an idol in your own heart, something you desperately crave. If that person is beautiful, you see how accepted and loved, just naturally people are gravitating to this person. Jealousy says, I so desire acceptance, I so desire approval, I want to be known as beautiful, and so it hooks your idol. That's what jealousy does. 
Someone has something that you need that gives you that sense of worth, and you don't have it. So someone else has the looks. Someone else has the popularity. Somebody else has that job or that salary. Somebody has that family or that lifestyle. Those are all monuments by themselves. By themselves, they're just monuments that we tend to build. And when you don't have that built in your own honor, it makes you feel inferior. It's the reason why Samuel says, your arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Here's what went wrong with Saul, and it goes wrong with us all the time. We're constantly feeling and experiencing this need to build monuments. That's why we're so tired today in our society. That's why we're so anxious in our society. It's why we're so depressed in our society. We're tired because we, need, we feel this inward drive to build the monuments. We're anxious because we're afraid we're going to lose those monuments. We're anxious because we don't think we're going to get to finish those monuments that we so desperately need to build to feel the sense of worth about ourselves. And we're depressed when we failed to build those monuments. That's what happens. We're anxious. We're depressed. That's why we're so jealous of one another. You see that? And the internet makes it worse. In our day and age, Instagram makes it worse because Instagram, you post the happiest things, all the things that are going well in your life. We're literally building monuments. You know, they had the, back in the day, they had the hashtag no filter. Now, everything's filtered, right? Because you've got to cover over everything, every blemish, right? Every wrinkle. You've got to look, if you're going to put some time into taking that picture, it's got to be the perfect picture, and then you've got to embellish it to make it look, it's a monument. You want people to look and see, and you want, you want to get those likes, right? What goes wrong with us is that we act superior because we feel so inferior. And think about this. If God is sufficient for you, if God's love for you is sufficient for you, if God's love for you is how you know you are accepted, if God's love for you is how you know you are approved, if the creator of the universe, the master of the universe, and his mindfulness of you to guide you and lead you, his desire for you, his desire, his perfect and good desire for you is what you submit to because you know that that is perfect and excellent and good and that is praiseworthy and you know that he honors you and cares for you and delights in you. And, then, and it's just doting on you and he looks at you, even in your flaws, he looks at you and he says, I love my child. If that isn't enough for you, well, first of all, if that isn't enough for you, what is? If the love of the creator of the universe isn't enough for you, what love will fill your heart? If God's love for you is his value of you, his honor in you, his delight in you, if that is your monument, then you can handle any news about yourself. You can handle the, the worst news, the truth, anything about yourself. The truth will not destroy you because it will never undo God's eternal, unfailing love for you. But what if the monument that you build in your honor is your children? Oh, then you got to protect your children. Oh, we got to coddle our children. Oh, we, if anybody says a single bad thing about your child, you get incredibly defensive. What if your monument in your own honor is your wealth, is your job? Oh, then you got to protect that job. You will, you will make sure that your record at work is perfect, spotless. What if your monument at work are your grades? 
you know, that degree, oh, then it's going to be, you're going to have an immaculate road. But it takes work. That's why we're so tired. There are going to be moments of tremendous anxiety, moments of tremendous depression, especially when you fail. You see that? You know, one of my favorite movies is uh, Chariots of Fire. It's an old movie. If you ever get a chance to watch it, it looks dated, but it's a great movie. It won Oscars. It was like, it won like, I don't know, like eight Oscars or something like that, okay? 1984, old movie, right? Most of you, how many of you were born after 1984? So you never even heard the movie. It's a true story. It's about an Olympic runner. The Olympic runner is Eric Liddell, right? Uh, He eventually became a missionary uh, in China, and I believe he died there. Eric Liddell is a Christian, and it's a famous story because uh, through a series of events, he couldn't he couldn't run the one race he's been training for all his life because it was being run on a Sunday and because he's a Sabbatarian, you know, we tend to, we go out there, we're like, ah, let's go eat lunch, you know. This guy was going to sacrifice the gold medal of the Olympics because he, he was so faithful in his, in his spiritual journey. Uh, he, it, the movie juxtaposes Eric Liddell with uh, Harold Abrams. Harold Abrams was uh, another runner. He was a Jewish uh, runner, an Olympian, uh, running... Uh, in a time of great anti-Semitism. And so he was running for more than just a gold medal. For him, it was the reputation of his culture. It was an era of tremendous uh, hatred towards Jews, and so he was running for his people. And he was running for fame, and he was running for glory, a name. It was his monument. And, uh, you know, I'm going to butcher the, the phrases, but he says things. You see it all in the quotes. They're great quotes in this movie. You know, uh, Eric, Liddell, uh, Eric Liddell, they juxtapose the two characters constantly. One's always, a, it's like, you know, the campy 80s way, but it was really beautifully done. You know, er, you know Harold Abrams is training and running, and he's pushing and pushing and pushing. He's tired. He's fatigued. Eric Liddell's at church worshiping, you see. And one thing that Harold Abrams says is, he says, I now have 10 seconds He's about to run this race. He says, I have about 10 seconds to justify my existence. Tell me that isn't tiring. Uh, towards the climax of the movie, Harold Abrams is at the starting block, and he's talking to his friend Aubrey, and he says, you know, it, before I used to be afraid of losing. Now I'm almost afraid to win. You see? Meanwhile, Eric Liddell's running with his sister, or walking with his sister, actually, and his sister says, why do you run? And he says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. We're constantly using monuments to make ourselves feel superior because we feel so inferior If the monument that is held in your own honor is God's love for you, then you can handle any news about yourself. But if the monument that is made in your own honor is something other than your relationship with God, then the gospel itself, you will be unable to accept anything negative about you. And so we're constantly justifying our monuments, and we're constantly covering over the fact that we really need to build these monuments because there is this dissonance in our relationship, this disintegration in our relationship with God. And that's what spiritual deafness is. You stop hearing God's word. You stop hearing his voice. You stop paying attention to it. 
you stop taking it in. Saul heard, but he didn't really hear. God has anointed you as king. He knew that, but he didn't really know how much God loved him, how much God honored him. He knew it on one level, but not enough for it to captivate his soul, not enough for it to grip his life. He heard the words. He never danced to the music. And so he's deaf and he's blind. And look what happens. Everything he says, everything he thinks, it's wrong. Everything he said, it's not like he's trying to say the wrong things to Samuel. He thinks he's saying the right things to Samuel. That's the foolishness of it. And yet it's wrong. It's all bad. It's all wrong. And so everything he's saying, everything he's thinking is to ignore his conscience. It's to shift blame on others. It's to justify and cover over his flaws. And look what happens. All the while, he's building monuments in the background. Tremendous hard labor. Saul's a king, and yet he acts like a slave. He's living like a slave. Saul is filled. He has the capacity to be filled, and yet he's starving. Starving for love, starving for approval, starving for attention. Rosemary Miller, um, who's actually still alive, he's the wife of the founder of this network of PCA churches in Philadelphia. And both she and her spouse, her husband, who passed away much earlier, uh, were instrumental in bringing me to a greater understanding of the gospel. This is what she writes. She wrote this in the book, From Fear to Freedom. I love to be in control. I am addicted to duty and order, my rights, my ways, and outward performance. I'm outwardly moral, and yet inside I'm full of anxieties and fears and guilt. For years, I heard the words of the gospel, but I never heard the music. See, if the gospel is not your monument, something else is going to be your monument, and that's going to be the cause of tremendous anxiety and depression in your life. Because monuments are, something, are things that define you. Samuel says, your arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. If you think that monuments make you, if you think that monuments define you, they'll eventually ruin you and they will twist your life. And that's what happened to Saul. That's how good people turn out so bad. It's because they're not inherently good. They're just ignoring the bad, the reality about who they are. What's the cure? How do you address it? Verse 17, Samuel says, God has anointed you. God has made you great. It did not sink to Saul how much he was loved. And so there was no power in his life. And so Saul worked to build his own monuments. But you and I, Saul, he heard the word of the Lord. Saul had Samuel. Saul took that, ignored it, started building his own monuments. You and I, we have such a greater resource to know about God's love. We have an even greater resource to know about God's love. Saul had Samuel to remind him. But you and I, we have so much more. Centuries later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ is praying. What does he pray? He says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, may yours be done. In other words, what he's saying, I'll obey. I'll obey. You know what was being asked of him? God was asking him to be the sacrifice. So here's Saul Telling Samuel, I did obey, even though he didn't. I was going to sacrifice, even though he wasn't. Here's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, I will obey, and I will be the sacrifice. 
To obey is greater than sacrifice? Jesus Christ obeys and is the sacrifice, you see. Jesus Christ is our resource. Hebrews chapter 10, the author says this, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Rather, he says, I have come to do your will. You know what that means? Samuel says, God doesn't really want sacrifices. That's not what he needs. He doesn't need rituals. What he wants is your obedience. He wants your will. He wants your heart. Samuel's saying, you know, Saul, God didn't need any of this stuff. God isn't poor. He doesn't need any of this. He gave it to you. He handed it over to you. What he wants is you. That's what he wants. Jesus Christ says, Father, I've come to do your will. I will obey. And Jesus didn't obey so that God would love him. God loved Jesus. God dotes on Jesus. Mark chapter 1, Jesus is being baptized. The heavens opened up. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And God says, this is my son whom I love. Jesus wasn't doing it to get God's love. He wasn't doing it to become holy. You know why he did it? He did it to make us holy. That's why he did it. We were made righteous. We are made acceptable in union with Christ. That's why we build monuments, because we need approval. We need to be acceptable. We crave honor. We crave glory. And we pay tremendous tremendous prices for that. But when Jesus Christ died, it was the perfect obedience. And it was the perfect sacrifice. And that delighted God. But what it did was it severed his relationship with God. Jesus is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is true glory, true power, true richness. But on the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am not approved. I am not acceptable. I am dishonored. I am rejected. And Jesus Christ, as a result, gave up power, gave up wealth, gave up everything he was. Philippians chapter 2 says, he emptied himself of his glory. Everything that he was. And on the cross, that is completed because he says, what? I have been forsaken by God. God has been ripped apart from me. I am torn apart in body, and now I'm torn apart in soul. And so he didn't seek the heights. He didn't seek to build monuments. He says, my glory is when I will be lifted up. You know what his monument was? The cross was his monument. His sacrifice, his blood, his body would be our monument. He died so that the cross would become our monument. So we don't have to build, we don't have to raise things up on our own. Jesus Christ raised up the only monument you will ever need to justify who you are, and that is the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ took the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it all, and he received everything we deserved. He became the perfect sacrifice so that when you believe in him, God delights in you. God accepts you. God accepts you not on the basis of your record, but on the basis of Jesus' record. Not on the basis of your merit, but on the basis of Jesus' merit. Not on the basis of your goodness, but on the basis of Jesus' goodness. Not on the basis of your sacrifice and hard labor, but on the basis of Jesus' work and hard labor the monument that he has set up and built on the cross, not to justify himself, but to justify you. The only way you get it is by not ignoring your conscience. The only way you receive it is by not blame shifting, 
but looking at yourself, taking a hard look at yourself and saying, the only monument that I will ever need to be built is the monument that Jesus Christ already built for me, and that is the cross where his blood was spilled and his body was broken and he was torn apart from the Father so that I could be received into the Father. Do you see that? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Otherwise, it wouldn't be good news. The gospel means good news. Otherwise, it wouldn't be good news. If you have to strive, if you have to work, if you have to work your way into acceptance into God and into other people, then it's not good news. That's bad news because you'll never get there. You never could. The gospel says we are accepted because Jesus Christ was rejected. We have been mended and interwoven into the Father's heart because Jesus was torn apart from the Father's heart, you see. The gospel is the ultimate monument for you. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. The cross is the one monument that we need that you cannot build that will melt away your self-deception, that will melt away your pride, that will melt away your sin. And then you will be able to face the real truth about yourself, and the real truth about God, that you are loved and that you are honored and that you are delighted in, not because of your obedience or because of your merit or because of your record, because of what Jesus has done for you. Your monument, your work is Christ's cross when he said it is finished, the work is done, and that makes you free, free from that need to just keep working and working and working for God's acceptance. You are free. And when you are free, that brings a joy. You're able to hear the music of the gospel. You can dance, you see. It will compel you to love God, serve God, hear his voice, obey God. Let's pray together.